Happy Monday, everyone. Welcome to Couch Potato Diary, coming to you from the Clearwater Cleaning Solutions broadcast studio. Clearwater Cleaning Solutions is a one-stop, locally-owned commercial and residential cleaning company that focuses on providing the highest level of cleaning services and supplies to their clients. Visit them online at clearwatercleaningsolutions.com. You can find me on social media, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at primetimecline, twitch.tv slash primetimepk. You can email the show, couchpotatodiary at yahoo.com, with the music provided by Wasted talent. So, we got uh, big news coming from the sports world this weekend. Tom Brady is back. The Yankees did something. Some tragedy from the world of professional wrestling this week, and trying something new on the program. So, a lot to get to on the show today. Um, We begin with the National Football League, as Tom Brady is back. His retirement lasts about a month, and cool. Great. Awesome. Um, this this is such a weird situation because like he he was he was barely gone. No one believed he was fully gonna be gone, and then he came back. Like I understand maybe at that point when he was like, you know what, I am fully retired. I am doing this. Maybe he fully believed it in his heart of hearts. But if you're if you're kind of on the fence, just don't say anything. Like I I just I don't. I don't get it. I, I really don't get it. But uh, the NFL is a better place with Tom Brady in it, at least from a footballing standpoint. And now for Tampa Bay, we were we had big questions about what they were going to do at quarterback. And now we know uh, Tom Brady is going to be what they do at the quarterback spot. And like, again, we went through it. There aren't a whole lot of quarterback needy teams left out there. I think that makes this draft really interesting. And now you have Deshaun Watson, who is back in the mix. Say what you will about that, but Deshaun Watson is back. And apparently the Saints are looking at him. The Panthers are looking at him as they now realize maybe this division isn't as wide open as we initially thought. And yeah, I I just... I, there isn't really a whole lot of analysis to, to have with this. It's, well, the Tampa Bay Bucks are better with Tom Brady, and now that division is a little bit more difficult to win for the other teams. Like, that's that's basically the extent of it. And I, I just, like, Brady steals a bunch of the headlines for about a month and is now gone, or, and, and, and is now back again. Um, I don't know. The whole The whole thing just seemed really, really weird and just kind of screamed of a guy who wasn't maybe all the way ready for, well, clearly wasn't all the way ready for retirement. I, I was messaging with a buddy and we were, we kind of agreed. Brady strikes me as the guy who's always going to need to be doing something, right? Like he, he isn't just going to be like what Joe Montana basically is now where Montana re- retired and was just gone. As far as I know, anyway, as far as I can remember, he, he strikes me, uh, Brady strikes me as someone who, and I don't think he'll do the TV thing either. I don't think he has that type of personality. He'll probably have a podcast cause everyone does. <clears throat> um, but like he strikes me more as the ownership type than any of that. And people are kind of drawing the two things. Cause he was at the man United game where Ronaldo, uh, Ronaldo gets his hat trick. And he met with, um, I believe he met with the, the, the United owners out there. And all of a sudden, Tom Brady's looking at getting another 25, 30, 40 million, however much he's making, with the, the, the Tampa Bay Bucks. It's like, hmm, interesting. And look, there, there's a team available right now out in Chelsea. I, I wouldn't wouldn't be overly stunned if Brady isn't at least like 1% part of uh, an ownership group that... Um, tries to save Chelsea from that weird situation. So Brady is back. The the NFL people rejoice. The New York Yankees making a trade yesterday as they acquired Josh Donaldson and longtime Minnesota Twins great um, Kiner Falefa. 
Jeez. This is the thing. I like him a lot, but I haven't had to say his name a ton because you don't really talk about the Rangers. The, the first thing, it, this is the, the one of the least important parts of this trade. Connor Falefa is really underrated. I, I think because he played with, uh, with Texas and just no one saw them, he is going to be annoyingly good for the Yankees. He's someone who has caught before. He can play shortstop. He can play all over the infield. I think he can play a bit of outfield as well. I think he is going to be a really good fit for the New York Yankees and someone who's going to provide a lot of versatility for the Yankees. And I think in a vacuum, this move is kind of, it, this move peaks at, okay. Like I honestly, I don't know if they get objectively better. Like Donaldson is a upgrade offensively over Gary Sanchez in that he doesn't strike out uh, 90% of the time. It's like 65% of the time. Both of those are exaggerated, obviously, but I, I like, Urshela quite a bit. Now, I think Connor Falefa is a bit of an upgrade over Urshela. So I guess talking through it, like when, when you look at the, the pieces that are swapped out and I get that there's another catcher that comes in from the, the twins. I don't know a ton about him, but like Donaldson at the plate at this point is kind of just a better version of Gary Sanchez. Strikes out more than you'd want him to, can still run into a bunch of pitches and will hit some bombs at Yankee Stadium. Connor Falefa, I, I think can play all over the diamond and has a pretty good bat. That's basically what Gio Urshela was. I think he's just like a touch of an upgrade on those. So it, it doesn't make the Yankees appreciably better, but it's a touch of an upgrade for, for both of those situations. The thing that I think a lot of Yankees fans are wondering now is what's next, because this can't be it for New York. They need to get another lefty in that lineup and they probably need to get another infielder just in general. Um, Luke Voigt, I think is pretty clearly out as it sits right now. You could go, um, LeMahieu at first, Falefa and Torres up the middle, whether you want to go, whichever one you want to go at short, and then Donaldson at third. I think that's fine, but I think you have some obvious injury concerns around this team with Judge, with Stanton, with Donaldson, LeMahieu. Uh, I don't believe you can count on being much of an Iron Man at this point. So I, I think that's why the addition of Kiner Falefa helps a lot, and that's why I think there's also going to be Another move or two on this infield. I, I think that, like, it, it sounds pretty obvious they're in on either Rizzo or Matt Olson. I think they were in on Freeman, but that, it doesn't seem like that's going to go the way the Yankees want it to. So that opens things up a little bit to either Torres is involved in an Olsen trade and you can move Kiner Falefa to short and LeMahieu to second, or you keep everything the same and Kiner Falefa is just kind of bouncing around because someone's always going to be hurt on this Yankee team. And I think, honestly, I, I think he could play a bunch of games at catcher this year for the, this Yankee squad as well. So I think this does open things up a little bit, but there has to be another move or two coming. And by the way, I think there still needs to be a starting pitching addition for this Yankees team as well. I wonder if they've just kind of punted on that since a lot of the names are now gone. The Blue Jays make a move by bringing in Kikuchi for three years. I believe it's 36 or $38 million. He's fine. He is someone who the stuff and the underlying numbers haven't ever really translated to the traditional counting stats or to real life on the field stats. Like he, he has been, I would suggest disappointing in three years with Seattle, but I think he is a someone who there, there is a breakout potential there B, someone who I think Pete Walker can really sink his teeth into. This is the exact type of guy I was looking for the Blue Jays to get, a Pete Walker project that he can mold into a diamond, much like he did with Robbie Ray. And B, if it doesn't work out, dude's the fifth starter. They already have Gosman, Barrios, Ryu, and Manoa. You have Kikuchi. 
You have Nate Pearson as depth. I think they still have Stripling. I wouldn't be surprised if the Blue Jays don't go. Uh, I would be surprised if the Blue Jays don't add a couple other names to their starting staff. I've wanted um, Duffy. I don't think they bring him in now just because, like, then you are guaranteeing that one of these guys isn't um, in the big league rotation right away. And you could put one of them in the bullpen, and Duffy's not back till June. But I, I think the Blue Jays maybe add a bit more depth. But now, speaking of teams that need to make a move on the infield, um, this is a team I think, I don't think you can go into the season with Espinal and Biggio both in your starting lineup. If you add a second baseman, you don't have to, or I guess second baseman or third baseman, and you don't have to move Biggio, I wouldn't mind Biggio in the starting lineup. And then Espinal is kind of in the role that I just talked about Kiner Falefa in, where he can kind of bounce around everywhere. I think that there still needs to be another move on the infield here for the Blue Jays. And you wouldn't mind another like high, high, high end bullpen arm, but I don't know how many of those are left out there. So some interesting stuff with baseball back. It's happy to be talking about it today. Some bad news earlier as Fernando Tatis Jr. broke his wrist. So he is uh, out for a little bit. As someone noted, he has traditionally been a quick healer, but we'll, we'll see. It, it sucks either way when one of the, the top players in baseball is out. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, trying something new on the program today. music that you hear on Couch Potato Diary is provided by Wasted Talent. You can find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent with X's where the A's would be. And you can find their producer on Instagram at Tommy Fresh Music. So when I was working at uh, my last spot, I, I had a bit of an idea about just kind of like, because one of the things that I tried to pride myself on was just like, I just watched more stuff than everyone. And as time went on, that faded away. Um, I, I don't, I, do, I certainly don't believe that now that, that I watch more than everyone. Um, but I, one of the things I always do is every game I watch, I'm taking notes on it. And a lot of times it's just for like a 20 second. Oh, by the way, this guy's played really well lately, but it just kind of keeps me engaged a little bit. But one thing I thought is I, I like, I have all of these notes. I should be using this a little bit more than just, to go back and, yeah, I think this guy's played really well. Well, the last few times I've seen him, he's played really well. And I had this idea at my last place to do something. Actually, I was going to call it the Couch Potato Diary um, and just have, like, different entries and stuff like that. But then I was always really panicked about um, what my last employer would own of my intellectual property and stuff like that. So that's why uh, when I get laid off, all of a sudden Twitch happens and all of a sudden... Um, uh, this this podcast happens, and the, the branding of all of this happens. So, um, with that being said, we're now almost a year into this thing. I may as well do the thing that I thought I was going to call Couch Potato Diary in the first place. And Sunday was a wide-open sports day for me, so we're going to run through three games and just kind of my thoughts on these. And you guys can let me know on social media, Twitter and Instagram, I'm at PrimetimeKlein, if you think this is awesome or if you think this is really stupid. So we start in the world of the NBA. It was the Celtics against the Mavericks. Full disclosure, I wanted to start with Brooklyn against the Knicks, but your boy slept in on a Sunday, so... Sue me. Um, Dallas had nothing going on offensively early on in this game. It was basically just try to beat their guy one-on-one, -on -one, create a bit of chaos off of that, and then hope for the best. Boston's on-the-ball defense, though, was excellent 
in this game. And then you had the added cherry on top of Luca, who had to leave early in this game with a hamstring issue. Uh, he ends up coming back in the second. He had a strong take at Horford for the layup. Anytime he had Horford on him, he ate him alive. And look, Luca's going to eat 95% of the NBA alive if he gets them one-on-one. -on -one. But I thought Dallas did a really good job of getting Luca in mismatches and taking advantage of this. Remember this note for Tatum later. Aside from Luca, the Dallas offense that was really, really sloppy in this game. Finney Smith had one. He drove baseline and every person who has ever coached basketball for a minute or played basketball for a minute knows that this is something that drives coaches crazy. Finney Smith drives baseline and then he jumps and he's behind the backboard. So he's not, uh, unless he's going to go Dr. J with the big go-go gadget arm around and the layup, um, he's not getting up a shot. So now he's committed to having to pass and the, the, everything was just clogged. So he ends up turning it over and there was just, there was a lot of those types of plays for Dallas. A lot of passes that were off target, um, a, a lot of, just a lot of sloppy, sloppy play from Dallas, especially on offense. Their defense was exceptional, but early on the offense was really, really bad. Boston went the other way. Jalen Brown absolutely stole Kleba's soul with a dunk. Then Tatum hits a three. They get a stop and Tatum gets a transition layup and it felt like this game was slipping away from Dallas. And another issue that they were having early is Robert Williams III was just beasting on the glass. He averages four offensive rebounds a game. I'm sure that number didn't go down after this last game. He was unbelievable on the glass. And in part because the Mavs went smaller in this game. They wanted a little bit more playmaking out there against a very good defensive team in, da uh, in Boston, and they got eaten up down low. I like Powell quite a bit, but he really struggled in this game, and we just talked about it. Kleba was killed until late in the game. Third quarter, though, Dallas gets back into it. Finney Smith starts hitting some shots, same with Luka, and they started to move the ball, actually. Like, instead of just ISO dribble, 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 well, hopefully now I can get past you and then create a bit of chaos with some help defenders, they actually moved the ball and created some openings. They had 38 points in the first half. They had 38 points in the third quarter. On defense, Dallas, again, this is two of the top teams defensively in the NBA. And Dallas was all over Tatum anytime he touched the ball. Like, he just had nothing going in this game. The Another issue for Dallas, as we're just kind of going back and forth here, is Dinwiddie really struggled from three. And then again, back-to-back -back possessions, they turn it over on fouls. And I, I just, looking back at this game, I have no idea how the Mavericks stayed in this game because there was just such a lack of execution on offense. But the defense ends up stealing it for him. So late in the game, there is a double team that comes at Tatum. He, I don't want to say he panics because you have two grown-ass NBA players in your face. That would require a bit of, oh, from me as well. But Tatum turns it over. Uh, it was going to be a fast break. Brown with the foul. The Mavericks come back. They set up their offense. And Luka hits a step back three over time, Lord. And I thought this was a really interesting contrast in how these two teams went about it on offense. Because the Celtics had a tough time getting Tatum anything in the, the second half of this game. He had two buckets. Both of them were at the rim. Um, and meanwhile, the Mavs did a great job of setting up Luka in some situations where he could take advantage of mismatches late. And another thing that happened was Tatum, or, um, yeah, Tatum would turn the ball over when he would get doubled sometimes. Luka, they were creating open shots. They were missing a bunch of them, but they, they were creating some open looks anytime Luka got doubled. And I think that's why you, you saw things, but I thought it was a real interesting contrast on one end double, or, um, you have Tatum who 
is just kind of a sitting duck out there where you have Luca, they're moving things offensively and he's getting into mismatches to create late game situations. So that gets Dallas back in it. Then with a minute left, Kleba gets his revenge with a block on Brown. Tatum then clangs another three and then the dagger. And this was such a phenomenal play. And I thought Hubie Brown did a pretty good job of, of breaking it down on the broadcast. Luca drives and he kicks it back to Dinwiddie who nails the three. But when you watch the replay of this, Luca's like a quarter back in the NFL where he's looking the coverage off. So he beats his man off of the dribble. And then as he is coming in, some help comes from the side. So immediately his eyes and kind of his body shift to kick it to, I think it was Finney Smith in the corner. Horford sees this, rotates down. Luca goes back kind of elbow area to Dinwiddie who is wide open. Like it was just, it was a masterful use of everything by Luca. The way his body was positioned, his eyes, everything. And then he just chips it back to Dinwiddie who knocks down the three. Dinwiddie had been cold all game, but he gets that open look and he drills it. Just an Unreal play from Luka. He is a treat to watch every time. There's still about 10 seconds left on the clock. Dallas then has a great possession defensively. The Celtics, they tried a thing where, um, I think it was, yeah, it was Brown. Started at the top and then just sprinted all the way around the floor. And I think they were assuming that at this point, someone gets tangled up with him. And he is open in the corner for a three. They were trying to get Tatum open up top, but that was just never happening. Tatum really had a a bad second half in this game. He was good defensively and he was pretty good distributing, but just scoring the ball, he really, really struggled. But there was no, like, I I don't know if Time Lord missed a screen down low or if it was just really good on the ball defense, but Brown couldn't get open. Tatum didn't get open. They finally kind of force it to Brown. He kicks it back out to Smart. Three ball misses, but... The play is called because it looks like Luca fouled him. And I think he clearly fouled him. The ball is definitely gone by the time he hits his hand, but you still can't, you can't do that, I thought. So it was, it's a foul that's been called for years and years and years. And then the review takes a few minutes. Like we get a commercial break and then we have time to get a few slow-mo replays in there before they finally say, ah, uh, the challenge was successful. And that's all they said. The, the review system in the NBA desperately needs to be improved. A, like every review system in sports, it needs to be quicker. But then, if we're going to wait five minutes, at least tell us why you made the change instead of this was successful. Because that, like, the, there's just no accountability there. You can just say, yeah, I was successful. Why? Because we fucking felt like it. Like that, y- you can't do that. That that leads to a whole lot of questions that you need to at least be able to show your work. And I I found that very frustrating. Anyway, Boston gets the tip. Tatum chucks up an an open three, but the whistle had already gone. He hits the back of the rim. Boston called a timeout right out of that. And I thought there could have been maybe a bit better communication on that where, hey, we're going to get the ball and call a timeout immediately. Um, Because like Tatum clearly didn't know that was happening. And he had an amazing look, but he missed it. So it bails Boston out. They have another chance at an inbound and you have Tatum kind of running like one of those football routes where the guy runs up, it kind of looks like, like it was kind of a slant and go, honestly, where it looked like he stopped going one way, cuts back the other way. He did that. He ran toward the baseline, cut back, and he gets, like, it's a perfect over-the-shoulder pass, and he has an open look. The issue is he still had three seconds, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in basketball, when you get it down to the tenth of the second, that's actually a bit of time. But instead, like, he just caught, shot, all in one motion. It was, he wasn't set. It was really herky-jerky, and it just, it didn't, 
It didn't put him in the spot that he needed to. I think he had a lot more time than he thought he did. And I get you don't want to like stop, set up, check the wind and allow the defender time to get back to you, especially when you've been getting double teams in your face all day. But I thought he had time to at least set his feet and put up a good shot. I, I think if you're Tatum in that situation, I would rather have a have a, a shot at the rim that's a bit contested, but at least my feet are set than an off balance open look. So uh, that clangs out. Dallas somehow wins this game. I, I I didn't like how Dallas played on offense a lot of this game. Defensively, they were great, but offensively, that there was just it was such a sloppy game. And then Luca kind of bails them out at the end. Both teams played really really well, but I think the story of this game is Tatum having trouble in the the second half. And I think Tatum has definitely taken a couple of steps over the last couple of seasons. But this was one where it was a playoff type of a game. And he did not have a playoff type of performance. And that it was just, it was an eyebrow raiser, uh, in my opinion, on the Boston Star. Moving on to what what was kind of the, the game my day was centered around with the Calgary Flames taking on the Colorado Avalanche. Good start for Calgary. Uh, I thought the, they kind of controlled the first about five minutes of this game. And then there's a shift. Rantanen gets a steal on the, the far side wall. And that starts... Uh, basically a full shift, like a minute and a half in the flame zone. And this turned the tide for basically half of the hockey game. Like it was just, everything was going Calgary's way. And then Rantanen against the flow of play, just boom, stops it dead in its tracks and sets things up in Colorado's favor. They control things. Um, Zadorov end up, uh, ends up taking a penalty on Jost, who I thought had a pretty good game on this power play. I like how aggressive the Flames are on the penalty kill, especially at the blue line. But the Avalanche eventually gets set up, and then it's just it's basic. It's McKinnon, quick shot beats Vladar. Like it, it was just it was it was a shot that Vladar was just a step too slow on. But I, I tweeted it out. I, there are some houses that couldn't have stopped that shot. Just a a perfect perfect shot from Nate McKinnon to give the Avalanche a one nothing lead. I think. I wrote down he has points in 11 of his last 12 or whatever. Like, he's just, he's unbelievable. He he really, really is. Second period, um, the Avalanche get a quick fast break opportunity. Their transition game is so good, and it comes at you in waves. Like, you get the initial odd man rush, whether it be three on two, two on one, or whatever, but there's no peeling off after the play, and then the rest of the support comes in, and so instead of two on one, oh, there's a chance and a missed, and now the puck gets cleared back the other way. The support comes, and the retrieval is so good, they turn an odd man rush opportunity if they don't score into extra zone time afterwards. I I was really impressed with the support that the Avalanche had in those transition opportunities, and it it just, it really drives home. That was the, the thing that I, I took away from this game, is that Colorado makes you play perfect the entire game, because if you are not, their speed, their finishing ability, and then their relentlessness on the ball, uh, on the boards, they're going to take advantage of it eventually. Like, if you make, and that was the thing, like, Rantanen, it, it was just, um, Dubé was a little soft on a clear, and that turned the entire game around. It, it was just, it was one mistake once and everything just shifted immediately like that. Um, still in the second period, Rantanen with an excellent backdoor pass to Johnson who was robbed 
by Vladar on just an unreal save. Um, and I'll, I'll say this a couple more times in this, Rantanen was the best player in this game. He was unbelievable to watch. Uh, again, the mix of speed and size and just an awareness of where the puck is going to be. And I thought Vladar was the best flame in this game for sure. He was excellent. Late in the period, Lewis gets a net drive chance. And th this was kind of the culmination of Calgary starting to turn the tide late in the second period. But it was also kind of a, a good example of what was going on for the Flames. They would get some chances off the rush and it would be a couple of good looks. But there was never that sustained zone time until the third period. It was their fifth game in seven nights, and they they just looked every bit like that. You know, like they they, they I'm I'm sure they gave everything they had. It's just everything they had wasn't close to what Cal, uh, Colorado had in this game. Third period, there's a scramble draw. Stone comes in to try to chip it out. He can't get it all the way, and McKinnon snaps it home. That shot is just, it's so lightning quick. Like, it's just on his stick and it's off immediately. There's very little defense for that. And it's a tough one for Stone, who I actually thought played pretty well in this game. But he gives the puck to Nathan McKinnon, and in doing so, vacates the exact shooting lane that McKinnon had to score. Like, it, it was just... Worst case scenario for Stone, I don't think it's a bad play by him to try to go in and support, but it, it just, it wasn't enough, and McKinnon ended up scoring. But like I said, I, I'm i not the biggest Stone guy, but I, I thought he was fine in filling in for Shillington. Then you have Rantanen with a pass to the, the top of the zone to McKinnon for a, a one-timer chance. This is an area that McKinnon loves to hang out in, and he didn't do it as much. I wonder if that's because, A, the Avalanche had kind of an edge um, or we're getting the, the better of the, the situation on the wall, so it was better for McKinnon to be down low grinding on a team that's coming in off of a back-to-back, -back. but he loves to hang out at the top of the zone, and I think that, we'll talk about it a bit more with Kucherov, but I, I think it's a really interesting setup that McKinnon has up there. The Flames push back, but again, they don't have enough in the tank, and then Rantanen seals it with an empty netter. It's, it's tough to take away too much from this game because of the back-to-back -back situation. Calgary playing the night before against Detroit, traveling into Colorado. This is where, like, you could talk about load management a bit. I thought the Flames did a good job of managing the minutes of their top players when that Detroit game was kind of well in hand. But um, I, I was thinking about this during the game. Like, would there be an appetite ever in hockey where Gaudreau just sits against Detroit and then comes back in against Tampa Bay? We would see it in the NBA all the time. Um, sorry, it comes back in against Colorado. I'm getting ahead of myself. But... I, I just, I wonder if that would ever be a consideration. Probably not. I'm not even saying it should be. I just, I wonder if, I just wonder if sometimes teams consider that. So we go to the last game that I covered of the night, and that is the Canucks taking on the Lightning. We find out before the game, no Elias Pettersson for this game. He's out with an upper body injury, and this one was all Tampa Bay early. There's a scramble in front. Maroon and Belmar battle to keep the play alive, and then Hedman pounces, and he scores. I, I tweeted this out. It is amazing how Hedman always seems to literally be in the exact right spot all the time. Like, he's just... Anytime Hedman is out there, he is just always in the perfect place that he needs to be. Again, it's all Tampa Bay early on. Hamannick with a turnover. Colton scores on a, a feed from Perry. It was a tough one for, for Hamannick in this game. He was just, he was a touch off all, all night. Um, but I was really impressed with Tampa Bay. Like, this was their seventh game in 11 nights. And I'm not saying, like, well, this shows that the Flames should have been um, in this spot. Because I, I do think there's a gap between Tampa Bay and everyone else. And this is more a, if you can, that's great. If you can't, oh well. Um, like, very few teams can come out looking this good in their seventh game in 11 nights. And 
we'll, we'll talk about it at the end, it didn't exactly close strong for this team. But I, I was surprised how the Canucks weren't ready for it, especially after how poorly Tampa Bay started against Edmonton and how the start of the game was a focus for the Lightning. The Canucks just were flat. And I, I thought Hamannick was an example of that, where he had a couple of passes that were just off. And in this case, it was a pass that was off that led to a goal for Tampa Bay. So I talked about what McKinnon does earlier. Kucherov kind of did the same thing. He stayed at the top of the zone a lot. And he is such a skilled passer and has such a big shot. He can be a weapon from up there. He's kind of like a quarterback on the power play where you can have him set back at the top of the zone and just kind of see how everything's going and he and Kucherov have that or he and McKinnon sorry have that explosive skating ability that if there is an opening in front or he does need to get himself down low he is quick enough and strong enough that he can get down there and even if he is the second third man in he can help win some of those battles um if Gaudreau had the shot of those guys I'd be interested with it I, I think it might work for Kachuk although clearly the the Flames offense is more set up from like those in tight opportunities. But I, I I really find it interesting when I see some of these guys playing like that. Second period comes and the Canucks get a power play and they look like an entirely different team. Like just an entirely new group showed up. Horvat gets a bit of a look in front. The puck was a bit too far out for him, but he gets a chance at it. Then Miller sets up Besser for a good look. Besser then unleashes Hell on a one-timer that was stopped. They had five shots on the power play and just immediately right back in this hockey game. That was one of those ones where it was special teams get like turns the tide and then in the third period uh an icing gets waved off for reasons that i'm still unclear on garland finds miller who scores tampa bay furious at this but then just a few moments later um it, the, the the order is restored in the universe as pearson tucks the puck in it should have never been blown dead but the referee lost sight of it uh, just before pearson was able to to score so it gets waved off and they they just they couldn't they couldn't get it back from there. They, I, I thought they closed pretty well, but the last few minutes, I, I guess they didn't close well because like that middle part of the second period to about the last five or six minutes of the third, the Canucks played really, really well. Like they were flying, there were there were some chances and then Tampa Bay just, in basketball, we'd say they dribbled the, the air out of the ball. They just absolutely sucked the life out of that game. I think the Canucks had like two shots in the last five minutes as they were pressing in this one. Um... The, the Lightning just never had let them get the puck. Uh, Vancouver was desperate to try to, to pull Thatcher Demko late in this game, and the Canucks never really got the puck, and then they did, and Tampa Bay just collapsed on their net, and Hughes' shot was blocked, and that was it. Hughes was another one. It was noticeable how little I noticed Hughes in this game, and this is, this is nothing new for the Canucks, and that this isn't a super hot take or anything like that, but... They need to figure out what they're doing with Quinn Hughes and specifically who they're playing with Quinn Hughes because like Hamannick is is fine, but he isn't unlocking Hughes the way that Tanev did. And this is another one of those examples where is Tanev just what you get from him? If you just focus spotlight on him, is he always going to be worth that contract that he is getting paid? Maybe not. But the impact that Tanev had on Quinn Hughes almost makes it enough that it's just worth it to just pay him that so that you can unlock your top player because he just he has not been the same since Tanev has left. And you look at the impact that Tanev has had in Calgary where he has got Hannafin to another level and he's getting Shillington to another level. They 
the, the Canucks, I think, desperately need to figure out why Hughes has not been able to get back to that Tanev level and try to get someone in there. And it's not Oliver ekman Larson, it's not Myers, and it's not Hamannick. Every experiment just hasn't really worked. Hughes, he got the puck in the third period and was like, oh, shit, that's right, he is playing. That That shouldn't be said about one of the top players in the National Hockey League. So that is your diary entry for Monday. Hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed this. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you didn't like about it because it's probably something I'm going to look at doing more and more of. Hi, I'm Kim Carson. And I'm Peter Klein. And this is We Had No Idea. A podcast about world events that you know about. But might have fallen asleep for during history class. Or social studies, however you learned history in high school. Each week we'll do a deep dive into important topics throughout history. So whether you already know everything or feel like you need to top up on some history, we'll be here for you. Listen to us each week wherever you get your podcasts. Woo! So you guys know uh, that this is um, obviously a show that covers pro wrestling as well as all of these major sports. And it's been a really tough weekend in the world of professional wrestling. It starts on Friday with Big E breaking his neck on a spot on SmackDown. Um, you just hope that the man is okay, um, and hopefully he gets back to, to doing something that he is one of the best in the world at as soon as possible, but just, you, he, he seemed to be in good spirits, but you know the next few months are going to be very, very difficult for him. And then on Sunday morning, we get the news that Scott Hall is on life support after um, suffering three heart attacks from complications from hip surgery, and... It certainly seems like this is not going to have a happy ending. And on by the time you hear this, that may be confirmed. And it, it just, like, it sucks, man. It really, really sucks. You, you just, like, obviously he is someone who is beloved by a lot of his peers. He, he seemed to have a pretty good relationship with a lot of people um, in, in his post-wrestling career. And if you have followed wrestling at all, you know all of this already. But Scott Hall is someone who, the WWE would say, battled a lot of demons in his life. He... He had some very real struggles with addiction, and that put him in some very dark places. And he's been open and honest about a lot of this, and I think that has been beneficial to a lot of people. But it did seem, at least from the outside, that this is a human being who was able to turn his life around. And I don't know if it, like... A, I've never I've never dealt with addiction, so I don't know if you ever really just beat it. Um, I, I certainly know that, like with any kind of struggles that I have had with, with mental health, um, it, it's it's never really gone. It's just you've figured out how to manage it a little bit better. And I wonder if that's the case with him, but not important. Either way, he, he at least was managing it so that he wasn't like showing up to wrestling events drunk. And it, it seemed like this last chapter of his life was going to be a, a remarkably positive one as he had turned things around. And now this happens. And it's just like, it just really sucks because he was such such an amazing part of an amazing time in pro wrestling. And this is, it feels glib to talk about the wrestling stuff right now, because from a, a real-life perspective, that this is a man with a family, um, he has kids, and a lot of very close friends who are going to miss him greatly, who really just got to know the real him in the last five or ten years, right? And, like, just from my perspective, so many of these people who have been a part of my childhood who helped like make my childhood what it was and are, are still reasons why I, I love the world of professional wrestling to this day. Just, they never get to enjoy, they never get to enjoy it as, as in the end. And a, a scene from the Bret Hart documentary that the WWE did has always stuck out with me where he's talking about 
um, Kurt Henning and then his brother Owen. And he's talking about how, um, talking about how like, it's, this isn't how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be what we're hanging out in our backyard at a barbecue when we're 90 talking about the good old days and talking about the amazing matches we had and the amazing experiences that we had. And now they can't do that. And for Scott Hall, I'm happy he was around to get at least some of his flowers, right? Like he, he gets the hall of fame twice. Um, it's funny. I'm, I'm way behind on the, the Conrad Thompson podcast network stuff. And I just got to one today where they brought him on to talk about the, who's the third man and, and all of that stuff in the NWO thing. And he just had the joke of, yeah, I, I don't know if the, the hall of fame thing really means anything, but if it means I'm better than everyone, I'll take two. I'm cool with that. Like just, he, he just had such a like, cool way of putting things and a cool way of looking at things. And it's, it's great that he got to fully, I think, appreciate for a couple of years, the impact that he had on an industry that he was one of the smartest in the world at. And you just hope that you, you always hope for these guys that they can live long and healthy lives after and can, can kind of see the impact they had, not only on their generation of wrestling, but generations of wrestlers after. And yeah, it just, it really, really sucks to see someone who turned their life around now, just out of nowhere, seems to, to have it kind of take a turn. And uh, obviously prayers to his family and to, to his friends as well. It's, it's a really tough situation, and it, it, it is such a bummer. And all I can say from a wrestling fan standpoint is thank you to Scott Hall for everything that he did, whether it be as Razor Ramon in the WWF or his work with the Outsiders, and then the, the things that he was kind of just attached to because he thought this business in a way that very few else could. He was one of the ones who helped come up with the Crow Sting character. And I, I was always stunned that he wasn't more of a part of something in wrestling with the mind that he had afterward. But um, all, all I can say as a wrestling fan is, is thank you very much to Scott Hall. Um, an unfortunate way to close the show today. But just had to, to get that in there. Um, a reminder, we are coming up on pick time for our WrestleMania contest. You can either share the Instagram post that I have that says contest on it. Um, share that in your story. Leave a written review of Couch Potato Diary. And then if you could screenshot it and send it to me, it makes my life a whole lot easier. And then you can also follow me on twitch.tv slash primetimepk each one of those things gets you an entry that you're going to fill out. It is ranking your WrestleMania predictions from most confident to least confident. There's a point value attached to all of those. And then the person with the most points at the end of night two of WrestleMania gets a $25 gift card from Sea of Dead, free residential cleaning from Clearwater Cleaning Solutions, and two free tickets to a Can-Am wrestling show coming up April 20th at the back alley. So again, share the Instagram post, leave a five-star written review of Couch Potato Diary, and follow me on twitch.tv slash primetimepk to get in on this WrestleMania contest. Shout out to Clearwater Cleaning Solutions, who are the studio sponsor for Couch Potato Diary. Join their March Madness promotion. If you phone and book and mention you want to book the March Madness promotion, you'll get 10% off of your first invoice with them. Uh, also, I uh, have the promotional code with swiftlifestyles.com. If you're looking for a drink that'll help you focus, go to them, use the promo code PRIMETIMEPK, and that will get you 15% off. You can find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram. I am at PrimetimeKlein. You already know twitch.tv slash PrimetimePK. And you can email the show, CouchPotatoDiary at yahoo.com. Shout out to Tommy Fresh Music, who was at um, the Bianca Del Rio show 
on Friday night down at Grey Eagle, which was an amazing time. And shout out to Wasted Talent for the music. I'll talk to y'all later this week. I'm out.